I always try to be the best at whatever I'm doing. <laughs> and if I'm not, I still tell myself I'm the best. <laughs> you got to believe it, right? I mean... <laughs> Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Body Serve. I'm Jonathan. And I'm James. This is part one of our mailbag episode. It, it grew so much. There were so many questions that it's going to end up being two episodes. Well, projected two episodes. We'll see what happens. <laughs> this is the beginning of recording, so. Yeah, we attempted to record on Saturday and neither of our spirits were in the mix or ready mm-hmm. for and that to happen. And then they clashed with each other. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean by that? Uh, none of anyone's business is oh, what I mean. Okay, okay. February is a very busy time on the tennis calendar, but it is also one of the few times when there aren't that many super premier important tournaments that everybody needs to pay attention to. So I like to use it as a, a little break before mm-hmm. warp speed. A couple housekeeping things before we move into the episode. We are mostly done with our mailings. We still have a few more to go. We've been doing them staggered. So I know some of you may have seen pictures on Twitter and maybe wondering, well, how come I haven't gotten mine yet? You may not have been in the earlier batches. Yeah. So not everything is mailed, but we're almost done. Uh, So if you haven't gotten it, don't be alarmed. If you have yet to give us your address, please do so via email, thebodyserve.gmail.com or direct message us on any of our social media platforms. And really, thanks again to everybody who's helped us out with the GoFundMe. And also thanks for the support in January. It was our biggest month listener-wise, like, period. Yeah. Yeah, we churned out five episodes in January. Started with the recap of the 1999 season, which, unfortunately, you know, we had to drop during the peak Novak drama. But we had done so much work on it that I refused to let that foolishness interfere. <laughs> and our last episode, the Australian Open Wrap, 10 days on, and it's already our third biggest episode ever. Yeah, this Australian Open, I mean, it had people talking. It got the type of engagement that, uh, I don't know, is like a little harder to find these days while, you know, Federer is out. You don't get, like, the Serena-Venus clashes anymore. You know, tennis needs to find its way, obviously, in the next generation. And I think this Australian Open showed the potential, even though the old guard won on the men's side. Mm -hmm. But it also showed that the ATP can survive. Mm -hmm. But this narrative that the tournament was going to suffer without Djokovic didn't bear fruit at all. Even if Nadal didn't win the tournament, there were still interesting matchups throughout the tournament. Mm -hmm. Do you want to kick things off with our first question? Yeah, so we're just going to randomly select questions here. The first question is, which designer or brand do you want to see try tennis apparel next? This is from Max. My answer to this was so easy. Ivy Park, period. I, I want Beyonce to be in tennis apparel. And, you know, if she can get to it before Ms. Williams uh, retires, if she hasn't already, that would be pretty cool. Got to break that Nike contract, though. Yeah, that's not happening. <laughs> um, I, I would like to see H&M back in the game. Oh, yeah. I would like to see Puma back in the game. They gave us some great kits in the 2000s with Serena, mm-hmm. late 90s into 2000s. Of course, Tomas Berdick with H&M. Many hits, many misses, but they swung for the fences. Yes. <laughs> you know? In answering this question, I very much got into my thirst trap bag in thinking about what I wanted to see. Mm -hmm. So Calvin Klein, get into some tennis so we can see the full range of photo shoots that could emerge from that. (laughs) Along those lines, pump. Really? Yeah. Why not? (laughs) (laughs) I think that many of the children will not even know what you're talking about. If you know, you know. Yes, that certainly is the case. American Eagle. I talked about this with Madison Keys as part of her aesthetic. 
I think they would do very well. It also go a long way toward making tennis more marketable, accessible to the masses in mm-hmm. North America. Target, along those lines as well. Target. Look, you used to you used to eat up those Target button downs. Yeah, back yeah, in that's the day. true. They have some good clothes there, and everybody shops at Target in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And finally, a little bit more high end. I didn't go with the fashion houses for this. No Versace. No. I would say Diesel. I think Diesel could come up with some good stuff for tennis. All right. Wow, that was a very thorough answer. Yeah, I, in preparing for this episode to record on Saturday, I lost quite a bit of sleep, which may have contributed to or lack of coming together. Mm -hmm. Harmony. Or spirits harmonizing to record on Saturday. (laughs) Also from Max, if the slams did anthems like the World Cup does... Who would you want to do the anthem for each slam and why? And this question contributed to part of your disarray mm-hmm. on okay, Saturday. Okay, so I still don't, I don't really understand the question. Um, so I don't know if he's asking, like, who should sing the national anthem or who should, like, write and perform a new song for the event. Mm-hmm. Like like that Olivia Newton-John song you played Dare, Dare to, to dream. dream, right? Do I sing I it again? No. I don't watch the World Cup. Mm-hmm. Like, I, so I don't know what... Is it like that Shakira song that they did I don't South watch Africa? the World Cup either. I watched oh, the World okay. Cup in 1999 when Jamaica qualified, and that was that. Mm-hmm. Okay. So either way, I, my answers probably won't change. Either way. Okay. What are your answers? So for the US Open, uh, Jasmine Sullivan, our really one of the best living vocalists we have in America... That goes without saying. Okay. And singer-songwriters. Okay. Oh, you want me to go through the whole yes, list? Yes, go through the list. Uh, Wimbledon, the UK. I am going to pick Dev Hines because, you know, it's a little out of the box. He's It's not like this powerhouse vocalist, but I feel we would get... Do you remember when um, Marvin Gaye did the national anthem? Mm-hmm. I think it was for... What was it? For the... NBA I don't know something. what it was for. NBA, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I feel like we will get something chill and vibey like that. I don't think it fits with the Wimbledon aesthetic. It doesn't, which is why it's perfect. Okay. I, I mean, I, I don't need to see Tom Jones or the Queen or whoever. Like, you know, I I want to see someone... Well, you're who... definitely not going to like my pick for Wimbledon. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, for Rolling Girls, I don't know any French artists. I realized that. So I was like... Um, is Serge Gainsbourg still alive? He's not, by the way. Edith Piaf, she's obviously not alive. Would be a great choice. So I have to pick Corentin Moutet. Okay. And he's going to rap his anthem. And for Australia? Olivia Newton-John. Because, I feel like that was a very phoned-in effort. I don't know any, <laughs> I don't know any Australian <laughs> pop stars. Oh no, the people who did that song, Boot Scootin' Baby. That they played on Please Like Me all the time. For Australia, I'd go with Kylie Minogue. Okay. Or Courtney Act. Oh, oh, she is a singer. She is a singer. She was on one of those, what do you call it, talent shows in Australia. Mm-hmm. So she first came to prominence, I believe. She was at the Australian Open final this year, if you recall. Yes. And on that show, she actually performed in drag, mm-hmm. right? She performed as Courtney Act. Yes. For the French Open... I, too, do not know any French artists. (laughs) I do know a French-Canadian artist in Mm -hmm. Celine Dion, Mm -hmm. who I think would rise to the occasion with the drama of it all. Mm -hmm. I think that's fine. Mm -hmm. The, the, you know, the most recent Roland Garros winner is Mary Pierce, among the women. Yeah. She is also French and Canadian. You Do you want to hear a fun fun fact? Yeah, but Celine is not French and Canadian. She's just French-Canadian. But, like... You know, there's the, the overlap. Uh, do you want to hear a fun fact? Sure. Did you know that Celine Dion performed in Eurovision, Eurovision yes. representing Switzerland? I did know that. So I think it's doable. It's allowed. You're saying she's for hire. Exactly. She could be for hire. Exactly. She's done it before. It's like precedent. when Bedinet competed for England in uh, Davis Cup. Oh my But hopefully Lord. less controversy this time. I wonder if Dan Evans will have anything to say he, about it. Do you think he'll object to Celine doing the <laughs> Roland Garros anthem? If not Celine, then I would do Julien Doré. Who? He was featured on 
call my agent. Mm-hmm. And he, too, was on a French talent show, like Courtney Act. Okay. Did he play himself on Call My yes. Agent? All the stars play themselves well, on I, Call... I didn't know if he was, like, a star or an actor. No, he's a, he's a star. Oh, okay. Like a, a musician. Oh, I see. It's a very good show. It is. I love it. For Wimbledon, Dame... Yeah, I, Finish it. I know where you're going Dame with this. Shirley Bassey. Absolument. She doesn't have the range. <laughs> Dame Shirley does have the range. But that was a, a famous quote. But you famously do not like Shirley Bassey. Can I load you up on air with uh, that? I, I don't. It's not like I dislike her personally. It, she, I just, I'm just not a fan of the voice. Mm. Not that she, obviously she's very talented. She's just not my cup of tea. For the U.S. Open, I would go Broadway, since it's in New York. Mm-hmm. Ben Platt. No, absolutely. <laughs> Do you remember not. that? <laughs> yes. He performed for like thirty minutes uh-huh. before the U.S. Open. Patti Lapone. Oh, great choice. Idina Menzel. Mm-hmm. These are scene. all New York-born people that mm-hmm. I'm mentioning as well. Bernadette Peters. The, the whole, the Sondheim crew here. Mm-hmm. And to top it off, we'd invite Leah Michelle to watch not knowing who was going to perform. <laughs> Lord. Okay, well, if we're doing New York, can I add Audra McDonald? Yes. Can I add Kelly O'Hara, mm-hmm. both of whom are on the Gilded Age right now? Mm-hmm. Have you, If you've ever heard Kelly O'Hara do If I Loved You from The Music Man, oh my Lord, she's incredible. So did you did you like my picks? I did, yeah, very much. You went the the real traditionalist route with Dame Shirley Bassey. <laughs> Delbert asks us, what are our favorite type of cookies? No, I want to say first and authoritatively, and leave no room for misinterpretation. I don't fucks with cookies. Oh, oh, <laughs> unless it's Christmas time. Mm-hmm. That's the only time I don't want them in my house. They are dark-sided. They are of the devil. Now, do you like them? Or is it just because they're not good for you? I just don't really see the point of them. Because, yes, some of them can be very nice. Mm-hmm. But you can't just have one. They don't come in just one unless, like, walking on the street and you go into a cookie store. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. You have to make this big commitment. And what it does to your health and your gut is mm. just unforgivable. Yeah, there aren't a lot of health benefits to most cookies. <laughs> there are mental health benefits. No, I, okay, okay, fine. But like you you have your favorite cake, you eat your favorite cake. I feel satisfied having that. If I have a cookie, I'm just like, okay, that was a nice 10 seconds of enjoyment. And then you're paying for it for like five days. Mm-hmm. Like the risk reward is just not there with cookies for me. Historically, though, my mother's... I mean, that's how you get pregnant. You know, (laughs) 10 seconds of fun and then years of regret. Historically, though, my mother's oatmeal raisin cookies, I very much enjoyed those. Historically. I do not enjoy most other people's oatmeal raisin cookies, though. Okay. I'm I'm really boring with all desserts. I like chocolate chip cookies. Like a warm chocolate chip cookie is amazing to me. And I find those to be the most banal of the lot. Oh, but I, damn. I didn't know it cookies has, had to be fascinating. To it has zero, zero character to it. Mm-hmm. What about uh, ginger molasses? Uh, no. It's a I, great cookie. I do not know her. It has some complexity. Well, let's delve into tennis. There's not a lot of rhyme or reason with the order here. The question is, what makes for a good tennis commentator? Any active or retired players you think would do well in the booth? This is from Lena's backhand. I'm going to give you a Mariah quote to set up this mm. segment from one of your favorite songs of hers. Can I get a minute to breathe? They're like, no, what's up with you and so-and-so? <laughs> <laughs> that is one of my faves. I'm not going to tell you what it is. Folks can Google the lyrics. Just tone down the talking. Mm-hmm. I thought you were going to say, if it's over, let me know. <laughs> John McEnroe. <laughs> when it's over, <laughs> let me know. What I look for in a tennis commentator is somebody who has done their homework, who can give you some cold, hard facts that I wouldn't know otherwise. Maybe some that I can't Wikipedia. 
you know, some some statistics that they told you in the production meeting, some database that you have access to. I'd love to hear about that stuff. About, you know, how many times so-and-so hits to the backhand and what is their percentage of winning those points. That's really wonky tennis stuff. I like to hear a tennis nerd teach me things. Mm-hmm. And you don't get a, a ton of that in broadcasting, which I understand for for a wide audience that may not be what they want. But it it's nice to have one of the commentators be that person. I want more dead air. Mm-hmm. The, the quiet of just taking it in by yourself and having the commentator be an assistant, a guide that is not running wild over the broadcast. It's okay to go a couple points without saying anything. That's totally fine. Yeah, yeah. Like, you're not paid by the word. You're paid for insight. And if you run out of insightful things to say, take a breath. We've been really harsh on commentators, especially early on in the run of this show. And having done the podcast now for, what, seven plus years, almost eight years we have a, at least I have a different perspective on how difficult it is. Because I think a mm-hmm. lot of times we take for granted that it's not an easy job and not everybody can do it and certainly not everybody can do it well. Because when you are calling so many matches, you're going to be redundant a lot of times. You're going to find yourself saying the same things mm-hmm. over and over again, relying on cliches sometimes, which is what we do sometimes not oh, even course, not yeah. even knowing you know and we publish much less frequently exactly. than commentators like yeah. during a tournament right so i get that part of it i have a better understanding of the difficulties of doing it and doing it well and so my advice or my request would just be to scale back less is definitely more for me with mm-hmm. tennis commentary yeah i i like some sober analysis of what's happening on court for for people who are not diehard tennis fans a little explaining goes a long way you know not a ton but a little bit breaking down why a player is choosing this particular shot or why did they approach the net there and was that the right thing to do and of course we get that but in my opinion maybe not enough and it's fine to be funny funny is great but we we didn't come here for stand-up we didn't come here for a Che Netflix special? A, a comedy concert? <laughs> Can I ask, what is that? <laughs> Have you ever heard... I've heard comedy show, comedy special. Why do they keep saying comedy concert? And um, where um, were the jokes? I, I It was an alarming choice, to say the <laughs> least. <laughs> that bit of writing. Mm-hmm. And finally, this kind of echoes what you've said already. When you don't know something, be quiet. And that has been a lesson to me in my professional life, being able to acknowledge when you don't know something and being honest about it. It's ironic uh, as a podcaster to tell somebody to be quiet if you don't know anything, because surely we've spoken out of turn before. But like you said, you, you don't have to fill every silence. Now, who are some of the active or retired players who you think would do well in the booth? I'm probably going to pick... Some pretty obvious ones. Andy Murray, who's done it before. Mm-hmm. Taylor Townsend. Vika Azarenka. Give, really given, like given what evidence? Give, I don't mean that to be oh, rude. Oh, sure, I'm sure. just saying I don't think I've heard her do that before. No, I haven't heard her actually do commentary, but seeing her speak to the press, uh, she is you know, she's a very passionate woman, as everybody knows. She's very plain spoken, and I think she says what she thinks. And I just think she has a great personality to be behind the mic. I don't know if I can pinpoint anybody just based on their personality. Because I'm not sure that that always translates. So unless I've seen somebody do it before, like say Andy Murray, I enjoyed his. But other than that, I think a lot of times the best commentators aren't necessarily the ones that you'd expect. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of low-key, low low-key, low-profile people who do the work well that weren't necessarily big stars as players. Yeah. A lot of the big stars as players, um, how do I say this? They were they were so naturally talented that maybe sometimes they miss the, the finer points that the rest of us want to hear about. So the long and short of me answering this question is I have nobody oh, you don't to know. give you. I'm not going to answer that because I don't know. I would like to hear Venus Williams give it a shot. 
I know it'll never happen. I know I don't expect it to happen, but I would be interested to hear her take. I really don't think that will ever happen. <laughs> no, no, it won't. And the same same thing. Like I don't think Venus or Serena will ever coach a player. I could be wrong. They surprise us all the time, but I don't think that will happen. The one chance you may get is if someday Venus does like a Leslie Jones at the Olympics watching some tennis commentary mm. on social media. But only <laughs> at the Olympics because she loves the Olympics. Right. I don't think she'll be just watching any old tennis otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, she would be getting paid to do it in this case. Leslie Jones isn't. No, but, you know... If she were a commentator and getting paid, would oh, she? Oh no, but she would not. She would not restrict herself. Oh, okay. By those parameters, I don't think. <laughs> In announcing this episode that we were doing a mailbag episode, I asked folks for questions, and then I also said that I'm going to ask you this question as well on air, and I wanted to know how has your own personal fandom of tennis players evolved over the years. Did you learn anything new about this with Nadal's win in Australia? And did anything about your personal reaction to it surprise you? <laughs> it was really a question I wanted to answer for myself, oh. but this was my way of getting it on air. Oh, so you'll give me the opportunity to answer? First, yeah. Okay. I have to say, in the years since we started the podcast, it's been more and more difficult to really feel like a fan. And it's... Like, I don't mean to be a downer, but in a lot of ways, doing this and being on tennis Twitter has sucked a lot of the enjoyment out of standing a player Mm -hmm. for me. And uh, I'll always be a stan of Serena and Rafa. Like, those are my my number ones. But I I don't know. I got to say, like, I've become a lot less vocal. I felt that I had to sort of reel it in a little bit. And that may be surprising to some of you based on what I tweet. (laughs) But, But it could be worse. And the experience of the 2018 U.S. Open, honestly, has been such a dark cloud that, I don't know, it's it's not as fun for me. I don't take pride in being part of a fandom. I'm just going to do me. I'm going to enjoy the players I want to. For me, it's become a lot more personal in that when you become part of a fandom or you stand a player... There's a collective effort to it, right? There's a, a community to it. Mm-hmm. Over the years since doing this show, I don't give a damn about what people are saying about a player that I enjoy. Whereas before, I would have been more into the the camaraderie of it all. Mm-hmm. You know, I've isolated myself from that. Partly out of necessity. Like you've said on the show before, what is it? Fandom is a poison? What is it? Oh, a fetish. Oh, yes. And that just doesn't do it for me. <laughs> you know, that mm. nothing about that appeals to me. And like you, I've found my fandom of my favorite players dialed back a lot in the last few years. And so when Rafa made this run, I was very much surprised at how emotional and mm-hmm. um, into it I was by the end. And I think part of that was I didn't dare to dream that this could happen, especially in Australia. Like, I legitimately right. did not think that this would happen, even with Djokovic not in the draw. That would have been ridiculous. Like, all the things over the years that has happened to him in Australia, for him to win at 35 under these circumstances, coming back from injury, COVID, etc., whatever, didn't even consider it to be likely or possible. I did think, though, at the start of the tournament, that it would have been the perfect outcome because of how both he and Novak presented themselves and walked through this COVID world in opposite directions Mm. since the start of the pandemic. Yeah, but there was something transporting about it, right? Like it, this Australian Open, if you were a Rafa fan, I think made you feel nostalgia Mm -hmm. for those first few wins, maybe for 09, beating Roger and Verdasco. It's, I didn't think like I had that connection, that sort of youthful love of a particular player anymore you know like i still love these players but it it feels even more at a distance which is weird you know when you're in the room with somebody like you've been in a press conference with somebody the mystique is is kind of gone it's totally right like you it's like oh my god that's a human being like that person is in front of me so you're starstruck the first time and then it's like oh 
I hope they give me a good answer to my question. And then it, it actually becomes personal. So that has taken some of the magic away from fandom. And I realize like what a privilege that is to, to be able to say that. But yeah, I guess, and doing the podcast, even though we are very open about being biased and we want to be honest about where we're coming from, you know, I still feel like we have to be fair. So if we're critical of certain players, we have to hold up a lens to our favorites as well. And it's probably not as harsh, but still, it, you you learn to uh, sort of parse and criticize things your faves say and do. And to be able to do that, frankly, you kind of have to pull back a little bit. Yeah. I think that's part of where the distancing over the years has come into play as well. So that question was from Jonathan in Toronto. Thank you. <laughs> Next question. How much tennis do you both discuss outside of podcasting? I'm intrigued as it sometimes seems that you surprise each other with a statement that might be contrary to something said previously. This is from Alistair at the Salmon Complex on Twitter. This is a great question. And uh, funny enough, we actually don't discuss a ton of tennis off the air. Very frequently, I'll start a conversation and you will say, save it for the podcast. Yes. Or write it down. You'd start getting really into something and you have great thoughts, passionate thoughts. And I'm like, just please, not now. (laughs) Save it. You're wasting material here. Yeah, honestly, I feel like we have to save all the content for the brand, you know, like for the podcast. And also it uh, it helps us keep a little bit of a separation from personal and work life because this is this is work. Mm-hmm. And this question dovetails with one from Patricia, who asks, I'm curious to know how you structure, put together and deliver a pod episode. The dialogue you present comes across fluently, effortlessly and smoothly and you don't commit that dreadful, to me, error of both talking at the same time. Does one know what the other is about to say? Do you ad-lib some or a lot of the time? How on earth do you even know where to begin? Clearly, this must involve a lot of prep. I hope I'm not asking you to reveal trade secrets. <laughs> one of the few types of speech that is not protected in the U.S. Did you know that? What, what, what are we talking trade about? Trade secrets. Oh, <laughs> I'm full of fun facts today. This is a great question. Thank you for asking us about ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> this section of questions is you labeled it us. Us centric. <laughs> yes. Uh, so okay, here's the, here's the process of creating an episode. Early in the week, probably the day after we release an episode, the new Google Doc comes. Mm-hmm. One of us starts a Google Doc, sent, shares it with the other, and we just start typing out notes, things we want to talk about. And throughout the week or or the few days or whatever, we kind of put together things and facts and stuff we want to make sure makes the episode. Mm -hmm. Depending on what type of episode it is, there may be tons of prep. There may be tons of research. If it's, you know, during a Grand Slam, it's just kind of watching the tennis, seeing what people are talking about. So as things happen in real time, it goes right onto the Google Doc. Mm -hmm. And to follow up on the, the first question from the Salmon Complex. This is where we don't need to really talk a lot of tennis off air because we do that in writing on Google Doc because we're able to see the changes each of us makes to the document in real time or the next day whenever we check it. And so we we still kind of see what the other is thinking, but we don't really discuss it necessarily. Mm -hmm. I like to be surprised when we sit down to record. I don't want the conversation to feel like it had been Mm pre-scripted so i you know there's there's facts and stuff on the agenda but i want to actually do some real analysis in real time which we try to do and we have a huge advantage in that we're in the same room Mm -hmm. so many i would venture to say most podcasters are connecting remotely Mm -hmm. right so we can actually look at each other and like gesture the other to shut up because I, you know, I have a point to make. So don't talk. Yeah. We don't step on each other because we've known each other for many years. We have nonverbal cues and we spend a lot of time editing. Yes, that is true. I think a lot of folks would be surprised to know just how heavily edited <laughs> the show is. If there's something. I, I, I mean, I wouldn't call it heavily edited. It's mostly for clarity and smoothness 
we get rid of verbal ticks and spaces and stuff like that. But if there's a segment that just flopped or we're not confident, that that's going to go. The point is, it's never just recorded and then uploaded. Right. Never. Right. There's at least a three-hour window between recording and it being published if we, if we do everything in one sitting. Yes. So, Pat, when you ask, does one know what the other is about to say? Often, no. And sometimes we have to pause and say, are you serious? <laughs> like, is that really going to stay in? And sometimes it doesn't. And sometimes we have a whole editorial discussion about it. Mm-hmm. That's typically me saying something wildly out of pocket. Too racy, typically. Yeah, because this, this isn't 2016 anymore. <laughs> you know, more people are listening these days. We also have the benefit of... The chemistry that comes with being together for 15 years? Almost. As of Friday? (laughs) So, my God, like, if I can't build some kind of on-air chemistry with you at this point to use to our advantage, like, what is the point? If the rapport does not exist between us, it's it's never going to exist between me and any other human, like... (laughs) And that, that, too, is an advantage that we have that most other podcasts don't. That familiarity of actually knowing, knowing somebody. Mm. I can set you up in ways that other people can't to look good in answering <laughs> a question and vice versa, uh-huh. right? I can, yep. can lead you in a direction that is more than just an assist. Right. So in conclusion, it's all smoke and mirrors. It, <laughs> as I said, I said this on a, a Spaces on Twitter that I am purely a studio creation. Parker E. asks, what is our favorite WTA or ATP player foray into music? Love this. (laughs) We've talked about music a lot over the years. Uh Uh-huh. Player attempts, sometimes successful. I think the most meaningful and the biggest stamp on the music scene was made by Victoria Azarenka singing Happy Birthday (laughs) to Gael Mofis. (laughs) Why are there so many cringy happy birthday moments in tennis? And then I, it might have been 2021 where they were singing happy birthday to Bianca mm-hmm. Andreescu and she was crying yes. because she had just lost. I mm-hmm. mean, sorry, sorry to Bianca. Like that was horrible. But this is comic gold as you look back. My only answers to this are Sonego, who released a bop, a true bop. Yes, Un Solo Secondo mm-hmm. by Lorenzo Sonego. And the French half of Drip Drop. What was it? That's exactly what I wrote. Oh. Yes, Moutet's verse on Drip. Just that verse. Is really good. Yeah. That's why I invited Cohenton to do the anthem for Roland Garros, <laughs> aside Dead Singers. Serena Williams' foray into rap. Does anyone remember that? Oh, yes. Yes. She did about a one-minute verse, and it included this gem. I ain't never been a loser, and I'm always on top. Roofer. Yeah. Does that outpace Denis Shapovalov? Uh, let me tell you. The lyrics can probably use some work, but the flow was, I mean, in a different galaxy from <laughs> Dennis. I'll just say that. Better rapper than actress, I think. Oh. I'm not going to cut the <laughs> flack for engaging with that piece of mess. But... For As far as tennis player music, we have to mention Yannick Noah, who is a genuine pop star in France. I discovered this song on YouTube, uh, which was a tribute to Angela Davis. So I ask you then, why wasn't he penciled in for your French Open anthem? Uh, I thought it would be too obvious. Oh. You know, a tennis player. Maybe that was It a, was staring you right in the face. Maybe it was an oversight. <laughs> Fine. Parker also asks, what are our go-to comfort foods? You know, this part could take like 30 minutes. This could be a whole episode Mm -hmm. in and of itself. Yeah, my problem lately is that I only eat comfort foods. (laughs) So like it's it's 24-7 comfort. (laughs) I came home from the grocery store today and I said, look in the bags. It was a small trip. There are only three bags. Look in the bags. There's something special in there. And Mm -hmm. you got so excited only to find out it was the box of free rapid tests that they were giving out at the grocery store. And you were like, this is it? Okay. There's nothing fun in here? I mean, and by fun, I mean food. 
if someone tells you they picked you up something special. No, I didn't say that. Or I said there is something special in the bag. There is something special from the grocery store. <laughs> and it turns out it's a free antigen rapid test. <laughs> Great. Thank you. You're very welcome. <laughs> These are dark days indeed. Uh, comfort foods, popcorn, Doritos. I'm not super big on dessert stuff, but I do like candy. You know those Jolly Rancher, like, sour gummy things? Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. Amazing. Dark, dark, dark chocolate. Nothing milk. I like any kind of fried chicken in any form, size, Mm -hmm. boned, or otherwise. Mm -hmm. Chicken waffles. Yes, but it's not a comfort food for me. I don't crave it. Junk food and candy and snacks, it's not something that I need to go out of my way to get. To make mm-hmm. myself feel better. Mm-hmm. You know, like I have it and because I'm a pig, I'll just have all of it. But it didn't really make me feel that great. Oh, you know? I see. I love a, something that makes me feel great. And I had one today for the first time in months is an ice cap. Oh, from, from Tim, Tim Hortons. Hortons. Yeah. So if you're Canadian, you know. And I mean, there's actually Tim Hortons in many parts of the U.S. now. That's it? I thought you were going to say mm-hmm. something else. Is is the ice cap the same as it used to be? Because I've heard people saying, oh, it's it's not like it used to be. Probably not. Ever since Burger King bought Tim Hortons. Probably not, but I, mm. I still enjoy it. Mm-hmm. I have it so sporadically that I can't really tell the changes, really. I also like vanilla milkshakes a lot. Yes, love milkshakes. The other thing, see, I want to, I hope that we can get away from talking about foods as bad or good. Mm-hmm. because this results in a lot of disordered eating for a lot of people. So fried chicken is not bad, right? But you maybe don't have it every day. And so fried foods are my kind of my comfort food. If I want to just order something in, mm-hmm. you know, it might be a burger and onion rings. You've definitely been eating very comfortably recently. <laughs> As I said, <laughs> this pandemic, man, it's just going on and on and on. For me, a comfort food is something that reminds me of home, of Jamaica, stuff I grew up with. We would have three hot meals per day. We'd have like rice twice per day. So I want a hot cooked meal as my go-to comfort food. And often the things that I love, you don't necessarily like. (laughs) And I'm at a point in my life where I'll be damned if I'm making two different meals for dinner. Mm -hmm. So for years... I didn't have one of my absolute favorite things to the point where I'd forgotten about it almost. And I was just walking in. I know what it is. I was walking in the grocery store aisle and it, and part of the reason too is that this main ingredient is in a section that I never buy things from, canned fruit. Like Mm -hmm. I just don't, never buy anything. And my eye caught the chunks of pineapples and I was like, oh my God, why haven't I had this? It's a brown stew pineapple chicken which I love. Mm -hmm. So on days where you have leftovers or you're going to have some other comfort food (laughs) that I don't really want, it's a free license for me to make my own meal. A nice big batch of stew that I can have for like three or four days in a row. Which is also a big difference between us because I will have leftovers every single day. I don't care. You having the same thing twice is pushing it, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I'll also love just a regular brown stew chicken. Don't have to have pineapples in there. Love stew peas and rice, which you do as well. Mm -hmm. There, I mean, there are lots of Jamaican dishes that I absolutely love. Just nothing with pineapple. (laughs) (laughs) The stew peas works out perfectly for me too because you don't like the pigtails. And I love the pigtails. So I get Mm -hmm. to have all the pigtails. This question comes from Will. What tennis stories would you want to see as movies a la King Richard or Battle of the Sexes? I wasn't very imaginative with answering this question. Okay. I think you have much better answers to this. The only thing I came up with was Andre Agassi. Uh, got, that would be a good it's one. It's got the love interest. It's got the the Streisand, the um, Brooke Shields glamour of it all. Oh, it has the drugs. The drugs, the hair loss, the being like a total dick to a lot of people, the redemptive arc of it, the coming out a new, supposedly better changed man the marriage to Steffi Graf, like there's there's mm-hmm. a lot to it. Yeah, they could actually adapt his memoir. Mm-hmm. Think of it's. I mean, I'm already seeing it's it's locking up costume design, hairstyling, 
the wigs. Think about the wigs. I would say uh, we need we need a movie about Langlon. And, and there may have been one. I have no idea. Like, there may be... Do you a, want to say the first name as well so people aren't confused? Suzanne Langlon. Okay. There may be a French film about her. I'm not familiar with it. But this, I mean, this story is glamorous. It has all the drama. It doesn't even have to be about the whole life, right? It doesn't have to be a biopic. It can be a spotlight on one particular event or one tournament. And there are several of those really spectacular matches in her career that it could be about. I mean, she's just, the way that she visually translates is like very, very few tennis players mm-hmm. in history. We do know somebody who is working on a project about Suzanne Longlaw. We don't know if we are allowed to say anything yeah. about it, so we I won't. I don't think we are. We won't. But when that time comes, hopefully we'll talk about it all together on the show. Yes. That's an open invitation. Not necessarily. If you're a, listening. Not necessarily a film, but we will promote the hell out of it. Yes. <laughs> the other, I would also love to see some some queer stories in tennis being told. And in keeping with the 1920s, 1930s aesthetic, which I think it translates really well to film, Helen Jacobs, a legendary tennis player, a woman who had same-sex relationships, and uh, someone we talked about on our Pride episode, but I feel like a lot of tennis fans aren't familiar with her. And she was a great rival of Helen Wills Moody. There's so much to talk about The here. love letter alone. Oh. And finally, I have more. There's more. But yeah. It doesn't all have to be true, I feel. I would love to see a fictional tennis movie. To me, So to me, the, the best tennis movie ever made is Strangers on a Train by Alfred Hitchcock. And it really isn't a tennis movie, but it features the sport prominently. I would love to see another psychological thriller maybe based around a tennis match or a tennis player. Something very disturbing. Disturbing. Because that's what I like. Something directed by Jordan Peele? Jordan Peele, um, <laughs> Steven Soderbergh, one of the... Oh, maybe Ari Aster. Maybe not that disturbing. Not like hereditary disturbing. But, you know, something a little bit gritty and tense. Another question from Will. What are y'all's 2022 major winner wish list? Pick three women and three men to win the next three slams. This was fairly easy for me. <laughs> As it turns out. Mm. On the men's side, I just want Rafa to clean them all up. Yeah, I'm a very selfish fan. I branched out a little. I said Rafa, Felix, Rafa. If there is somebody to win that's not him, I would rather it be Felix. Mm -hmm. If I were being more democratic, I might say Rafa for the French, Felix Wimbledon, Rublev US Open. That would be cool. I would like to see another one of the young guys, preferably one I like win a grand slam oh i don't even need to see that oh necessarily well you don't really like any of the new ones (laughs) no not really (laughs) i'm indifferent mostly for the women serena 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 let's be realistic here (laughs) it was a wish list for me the french i would like to see muguruza or kerber win the french girl (laughs) get out of here a nice career grand slam for miss kerber that'd be pretty cool Right, haters? James? Are you talk- I'm not a Kerber hater at all. No, but you, I, just, I don't think you... I'm not wishing for it. Yes, yeah, so I think you're, in this instance, while you may not hate or hate on Angelique Kerber, you would be a hater of this achievement. I think you're using the word hater way too broadly. Wimbledon, Serena, and the U.S. Open. Another completion of a career Grand Slam for Miss Ashley Barty. If I did make an alternate wish list it like if i had to spread it around and let's you know let's say worst case scenario serena doesn't win any of those <laughs> that's the worst case i would pick uh coco golf for roland garros mm-hmm. danielle for wimbledon and ash for the u.s open this next question sent you to the encyclopedia britannica sent you oh, to which one <laughs> sent you to the internet to do some research Tennessee Williams, such a clever name, asks, what are your thoughts on the intersection of tennis and NFTs, non-fungible tokens? Was saddened to see Stanley has one of those apes as his avi now, but if it's not one scam, it's another. 
in parentheses, that is actively harmful to the environment. I did do some research, um, but I unfortunately I don't really have anything smart to say mm-hmm. about NFTs, which I told you before we sat down to record. I I learned about the blockchain because everybody said it's in the blockchain. So I learned what a blockchain is. And what is that? I mean, I can't give you a definition. Honestly, <laughs> basically, it's like it's a digital ledger that stores mm-hmm. all of the transactions, and it's irreversible, right? It can't be edited. So all the transactions of these NFTs are stored in this blockchain. It's a way of storing data, essentially. But from what I understand, in order to log all of these transactions, it takes a ton of energy, a lot of servers, and a lot of actual real, in real life energy. It's giving stranger things. Yes. A portal into the dark side. Mm-hmm. Now, what is an NFT, a non-fungible token? It's basically, a, if you can think about like a certificate of authenticity, it's, it can be a freaking JPEG of something. But if you purchase the NFT, you've got something that says digitally, I own this thing. But that's not stopping anyone from copy and pasting that picture, making it their profile picture, whatever. A colleague of mine in grad school wrote a thesis about the speed of capital. It's clearly <laughs> and you know only to, one person. Yeah, yeah. Who and how that. things like MP3s and stuff sort of collapsed the cycle of capital. So it was instantaneous. That's kind of what this is. I can't shake the feeling, my very uneducated and pedestrian feeling, that this is deeply stupid, deeply exploitative. (laughs) And when you add on the fact that it's bad for the environment, why rich people gotta be like this? Mm -hmm. If you want to call it a scam, you, you might be right. What is the exchange value of an NFT? I mean, that's what matters, right? That's in economic terms. It's only worth what people are willing to pay for it because it doesn't it doesn't have any real value, real physical value. It's only exchange value. It it really seems like this is a scheme where if you're an early adopter and you buy an early, you're the only people who are going to make money. Yes. So exactly Serena, that. Stan, Rafa now. All these people, they're going to make the money. You are not. I've seen Some it might called, call this a pyramid scheme. Yeah, I've seen it called a Ponzi scheme. <laughs> right. It is, honestly, it was very confusing to me. And I still don't fully understand it, but I was reading about it. And it, it kind of appears like there's not much to understand. Hmm. Like, there's not that much to it. I keep thinking there's something else there right. that I'm not it's getting. Like, what am I missing? You know, is it staked in some sort of real world value that i'm not understanding no i'm just waiting for dominic team king of (laughs) environmental protectionism to say enough to jet to a press conference in new york city and unveil his nft oh in interview room two (laughs) i'm i'm sorry i can't really give you a better answer about this because i'm i'm not an expert in NFTs or crypto or blockchain or any of that stuff. Yeah, I find it incredibly tacky that all of these rich people are <laughs> en masse jumping on this bandwagon. Mm. And then Patrick Moratoglu is out here saying, if only we had NFTs back in the day, can you imagine being able to invest on the ground floor with Venus and Serena? Oh my God. Like, that Dude. is the most exploitative is- shit I've seen in forever. Because he, the way he presented it was... You know, people didn't get it, but I I believe that I would have been basically an early adopter or an early investor of Venus and Serena. Dude, what are you talking about? This is the cringiest shit I've ever seen. It was... I mean, you were uh, alive in 1994, so I don't... What what is this retconning? (laughs) It's so weird. It's so weird. Why are they bad for the environment? I told you. Did you find that out in your... No, I told you because it... The servers use so much energy. Okay. Yeah. I just wanted to make sure that that part was clear. Oh, okay. So not only is it... so, But I don't know. I like, I've read things where there are, you know, there are potential solutions to that. Mm-hmm. To basically do this work without using so much physical energy. 
I don't know if that's possible. Like, that's way beyond my expertise. I've also read that a lot of people think that by the time that happens, it'll be be way too long for it to have made any reversible difference. Oh, okay. By then, all the rich people would have made all their money, and the scam would have truly done what it needed to do. Yay, capitalism. Yeah, I'm in a place where I'm feeling very cynical about the future, so I'm not going to spread that to people. Philip asks us to rank tennis headwear among the options listed. The visor, the baseball cap, the backwards cap, the sweatband, the tied headband, Serena's teeny headband, and Serena's wide headband. We also, we had an argument about what a sweatband was. We didn't have an argument, you just didn't know what it was. Uh, No, that's not, that is not the case. Alan, that is not the truth. (laughs) What is, what are we in disagreement here? A sweatband is like the, the sort of cotton ring that someone like John McEnroe or Bjorn Borg wears on their head. You were thinking it was like a wristband. No, I'm thinking of the stuff that Francis Tiafo wears. Yes, same, same thing. Okay, then we are in agreement. No. You are finally in agreement. <laughs> Whatever. Okay. Do we go one by one or? No, list them from favorite to least favorite. Okay. My favorite tennis headwear is the Tide headband. So that's that's someone like Steffi, Rafa, Roger wearing the Tide headbands. Also, Juan Martín del Potro. Yes. Wow. What a moment. That was actually a very poignant moment when he laid his headband on the net cord at Buenos Aires. Mm -hmm. This will tie into our next question, but continue. Okay. Number two, I'm going to go with the sweatband. The sweatband is elite, but under very strict conditions. It is only elite when it's on someone like Bjorn Borg or Francis Tiafo, and sometimes Gabriela Sabatini. See, this is why it can't be elite for me, because there are too many bad ones that and too many conditions oh for it to be good but i mean the the condition bjorn borg is is like the the icon your thirst for bjorn borg is a condition oh really oh really (laughs) i think a lot of people would disagree number three serena's wide headband followed by serena's teeny headband number five the backwards cap or the forwards cap whatever just a, a cap is fine. And to me, the visor is last. It's it's probably among my less favorite tennis headwear pieces. Hmm. For me, the wide headband is number one. I, too, have worn wide headbands. I have pictures with the wide headbands. You mocked me. You said it looked ridiculous. <laughs> and I persisted. I did not let you steal my joy mm-hmm. in that moment. Okay. Number two for me is the visor. Venus in her visor. Iconic. It is simply iconic. I don't like the visor on men. I would issue that caveat. Mm. So Andy Roddick in the visor was never into that. Oh, who was it? It was Brad Gilbert who said he had to ditch the visor because it wasn't serious and it wasn't intimidating. Oh my God, that's some gen- gendered bullshit right there. That is right some there. weird macho shit. He just didn't like the in sync hair flowing out of the visor. <laughs> it was a great time. Number three for me, the teeny headband. Love it. Steffi wore it. Serena wore it. The Tide headband, it's a bit overdone for me, mm. for it to be fair enough. top of the line. You know, So pe- many of the top yes. people wear them now. And wear them well. A lot of people look good in it. But then you end up with the tan line? <laughs> that just looks so unfortunate. Mm. The forwards cap, then the sweatband, and last, and this should not come as any surprise to anybody who followed the body serve Twitter account during the Australian Open, the backwards cap. Yeah, you hate it. I hate and it. And some of these things I told you you should confine to your personal account because I don't need that smoke. <laughs> I like backwards caps. Okay, specifically on Matteo Berrettini. Yeah. Uh, I find it juvenile. A, a lot of people do, but, you know, everybody has an opinion. Yeah, this is my preference. Mm-hmm. Cheryl asks, what are your favorite memories of Juan Martín del Potro? And this is timely because he just played his final match of his career yesterday in Argentina. It's rare that you see a tennis player inspire the pretty much the same emotion from almost everyone. Admiration, 
regret at what could have been. He seems like a really lovely guy who has been through terrible stuff in his tennis career. Like tens upon tens of injuries. Mm -hmm. Serious injuries. One of my favorites, I mean, obviously the 09 U.S. Open final. He had Roger on his full Karen shit. (laughs) I mean, Roger was pressed, pissed. That was an amazing moment because back in the day, back then, as hardcore Rafa stands, we were just here for Roger losing, basically. Yeah, that and is, it was a great match. That is definitely one way my fandom has evolved. Everybody was under the bus, especially Roger <laughs> back then. <laughs> right. I was so hateful and spiteful to some of my real-life Federer fan friends. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is pre-Twitter. Pre-Twitter, pre-the body surf, pre-everything. Youthful folly. Well, it was fun at the time. Now, I, I don't care if Roger loses or wins, like, you know, more power to him. But if was, he is playing Nadal, obviously I'm picking Nadal. At that time, it was just such a tragic period as a fan of men's tennis if you were not a fan of Roger Federer. Or Rafa. Well, I'm talking about, like, the... Sure. There were the French Opens That's at like that point. O three to 07, that period of ultimate domination. That was rough if you, if you didn't yeah. love Roger. Mm-hmm. So to your point about Del Potro, he comes along. He's 20 years old when he wins the U.S. Open in 2009. It's crazy to me that he's still only 33 years old. Yeah. I enjoyed when he got in that little tiff with Andy Murray. I don't now. I don't approve of what Juanma said, invoked like your mama, mm. essentially. But I will say it was kind of cool to see something a little bit off brand for him. Because he is such a lovable teddy bear figure that you saw him get impassioned and kind of mean. What is also off-brand is you supporting men behaving badly on this podcast. I know. And at the time, I probably wouldn't have supported it. But now looking back, as a fan of both Andy and Juan Martin, they're, they're over it, right? Like they had their little tiff on court and they're friends now. So I can kind of enjoy it. Mm -hmm. The forehand is one of the most indelible strokes in the history of tennis. What he was able to do on a tennis court with that forehand, the sheer power and bombast of it, jaw-dropping stuff, Mm -hmm. to the point where opponents, having been on the receiving end of it in a point, would start laughing at how outrageous it was. There was a clip circulating of Rafa and Juan Martin playing at Wimbledon a couple of years ago, and Delpo hits this forehand laser bullet that Rafa, I mean, you could not even react. He didn't have time to react to it before the ball mm. was by him, and he just starts <laughs> laughing. Yeah, because it's not a graceful stroke. It's not a one you think of as aesthetically pleasing, but there is a beauty to it. I find it pleasing. It's, um, there's like a very primal beauty to it. It actually does look like he's holding a weapon. No, but see, I find it aesthetically pleasing because it doesn't look like he's trying too hard. Mm. The power almost comes out of nowhere. It's not like he's gearing up to just whack the ball. It's so much timing and just the full motion of his swing that generates this blistering pace. Mm. For me, the other thing from... Delpo that I'll always remember is his Bumblebee kit. The yellow and black. Do you remember that? Mm, no. I can't I can't oh. place this one. Well, I can't really tell you exactly where it was from either, but I just know. <laughs> I'm I think sure it was one of those sleeveless people ones. People listening will know where it's It was from. a sleeveless one where he was he looked very Bumblebee-ish in it. Mm. And you were a fan of the original Bumblebee, Arancha. Correct. V.W asks us, If you magically got a chance to play a pro in a slam final, which slam would it be and who are you playing in the final? Mine's a little bit of a cheat in that I would play Venus at Wimbledon and I would gladly (laughs) lay down my sword. I would just show up, Mm -hmm. put the racket on the ground, walk to the net, shake hands and say congratulations on number eight and number six and enjoy it my queen you did it queen number title number 50 wow you did it again you've raised the bar (laughs) oh i i went in the opposite direction and went extremely petty (laughs) i 
I mean, if I had the choice, I would play like Irani. Ooh. Or Safana. Oh. Care to explain? Well, uh, I don't want to play Serena in a slam final. <laughs> I feel that's fairly obvious. I don't want to play Novak in a slam final. What are the odds that he's going to lose? I would like to play someone who, uh, like... Well, presumably, in this mm-hmm. fantasy, you are a highly skilled tennis right, player yourself. Right. So I would prefer to play somebody, like, not that good. Absolutely. Yeah. Just saying. Well, this is why I'm laying down my racket as well. Oh, I'm okay. not out here to play six hours of men's tennis in a final. Like, no, 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 ma'am. No. That is not happening. And I'm not talking about Irani when she was a formidable clay court player. I'm talking about, like, Irani now. See, that would not be a good scene for you either because <laughs> you get so pissed off. The catching of the no, ball tosses. Girl, if you catch one more, I'm done. There would be words had on that court <laughs> that day. Well, good thing for Sarah that she is always ready. But I think it would really rock you mentally in that match. Mm. You don't really deal with the junk balling that I throw at you <laughs> when we. <laughs> no, uh, Arancha Sanchez Vicario is the last person that I would like to play in the slam <laughs> final. If that helps. That brings us to the end of. Part one of our mailbag. Mm-hmm. My name is Jonathan. You can find me on Twitter at tennis underscore John. And I'm James at Elliot JMR. Two L's, two T's. Find us on linktree.com slash the body serve. If you have yet to give us your address for the GoFundMe, we still have goodies to send out. So send that to us and we'll get your bandwidth stuff in the mail. Thanks for listening. Till next time. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs>